Hello, my name is Dr. Melissa G. Hunt. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I serve as the Associate Director of Clinical Training in the Department of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And today, I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. So my biggest pet peeves with the supplement industry are, number one, they're not necessarily safe. Just because something is natural doesn't mean it's safe. Remember that rattlesnake venom and poison ivy are natural. That doesn't mean they're good for you. That's one of them. My second biggest pet peeve with the industry is that it's not FDA regulated, which means that you have no idea what is in that pill that you are swallowing. It could be exactly what it says on the label. It could be sawdust. It could be illegal steroids. It could be any number of things that may or may not have the effect that you're looking for. We just don't know. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Smoller, pharmacist and Big Mouth. Please check out my website, woodstockvitamins.com. You can find me at Facebook at facebook.com slash woodstockvitamins. My awesome Twitter handle is at nobsvitamins. And of course, I'm on the Instagram taking pictures in bikinis. Oh, yeah. On the show today is Dr. Melissa Hunt, a licensed clinical psychologist who serves as the Associate Director of Clinical Training in the Department of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Can you believe smart people actually want to talk to me? This is great. In addition to her clinical practice in cognitive behavioral therapy, she conducts research on the best approaches for stress management and into the causes and treatment of depression, anxiety disorders, and chronic health problems, especially GI disorders. As a clinical scientist, her emphasis is on translating basic psychological science into treatments that are effective, acceptable, and accessible to patient populations. Couldn't be said any better. She is on the show today talking about her research around social media. Super enlightening conversation. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So I guess we'll start out with a very simple question. Uh, Why is social media the worst thing that humans ever created? And why should we feel bad about being on social media? Well, I'm not sure I'd go quite that far. That's not quite what the evidence says. But social media certainly has pros and cons, and there are a lot of downsides to using social media too much. Mm -hmm. Now, we've known for a long time that excessive use of social media is strongly correlated or associated with impoverished well-being. People get more depressed, they get more lonely, they get more anxious, they feel worse about themselves. For women in particular, body image kind of tanks when people spend too much time on social media. But the problem with all of that old research is that it doesn't actually establish causality. All it shows is that there's an association between being distressed and having low levels of well-being and using lots of social media. Mm -hmm. So, of course, it's possible that people who are more depressed and lonely and feel worse about themselves are turning to social media in an attempt to connect and make themselves feel better. Correlational research really can't answer that question. What we really need is experimental research that shows directly a causal link between the amount of time spent on social media and actual changes to well-being if you manipulate how much time people spend on social media. And that's Mm -hmm. what we did. 
Yeah, and that's a pretty amazing connection because that's the thing that always comes up is 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 that the chicken and the egg are the depressed people more likely to seek out these groups and everything that's good about social media is that mm-hmm. you know we had a conversation uh, with somebody who studies fandom and she said how social media and the internet has allowed people to uh, find their passions and and be proud about them instead mm-hmm. of uh, like hiding in, in in the corners of the world. So I think that that's an important thing to distinguish is that before we didn't really know uh, which is which. So let's talk specifically about your study then and uh, how you guys developed it and and what was shown. Sure. So for our study, we decided to take some of the existing studies and do them not just not just one better, but but three or four or five times better. Mm -hmm. So we did a bunch of things differently. One of the first things we did was that we realized that all of the older studies had relied on people's self-report of how much time they were spending on social media. Mm-hmm. Often it was retrospective self-report. So you, they were just asking people, you know, after a week, gosh, how much time do you think you spent on social media this week? Mm-hmm. Well, people's memories are really bad. Yeah, and, and then now they're going to downplay it too. And like then when they I, downplay it, Of exactly. course. Yeah, I asked people what you eat over the last 24 hours and it's all kale and broccoli and, <laughs> and they weigh 50 pounds overweight. Yeah, no, that's not obviously reality. So Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So one of the first things we decided to do was get an objective measure of social media use. And it turns out that one of the advantages of smartphones is that they have all these wonderful little apps yeah. in them that actually track the amount of time that any given app is actually active on the screen of the phone. Uh, And you can get that daily or you can get that weekly. So it's a very, very objective and accurate measure of how much time people are actually spending on these apps. And a way for you to feel more shameful about your social media use, such as me, who spends multiple hours a week on Reddit, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and it reminds me every Sunday that, hey, you spend most of your life on the internet and you need to grow up. And you, Right. And maybe <laughs> do something else that's a little more fulfilling. That's exactly right. right. So that's the first thing we did. The second thing we did is that when we brought everyone into the study, we actually spent the first week just having everybody self-monitored. That is, people knew that we were going to be tracking their use, but they hadn't yet been assigned to an experimental condition. And that was just to account for the simple effect of self-monitoring, just kind and knowing that someone's looking over your shoulder and that maybe you're also paying a little bit more attention to how much you're using. Mm -hmm. So that was the second thing we did. We accounted for self-monitoring. But then comes the really fun part of the study. Mm -hmm. At that point, we randomly assigned people, like by flipping a coin essentially, to one of two conditions. And either we told them, all right, go ahead and keep using social media just like you always do. Just report your use to us. And the other group, we asked to limit their use. And we asked them to limit their use of the three major platforms, which are Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram. Now, there are a lot of other social media platforms like Reddit and Twitter and lots of other things. But those were sort of the three major ones that are used very, very widely by the the age group that we were studying, which was college students. In fact, a lot of the old studies only looked at Facebook, and Facebook use has declined dramatically in people under the age of 25, whereas yeah. Snapchat and Instagram use has gone way up. So right, because everybody's was grandmothers on there, so they can't put right, naked pictures of themselves. It's, it's not cool anymore. That's right. right. So, <laughs> so what we did was we asked people to limit themselves to 10 minutes per platform per day. 
So a total of about 30 minutes, give or take, of social media use. And we did that because we thought it was unrealistic to just ask people to forego social media use completely. Um, Facebook may be passe, but in fact, lots of student groups use it to establish like meeting times and, you know, to inform people about where rehearsals are and all sorts of things. So we wanted people to be able to stay connected, but just not to overdo it. Right. And then we followed people for three weeks. So it was a little bit longer. The only the only other experimental study only looked at Facebook and only followed people for one week and required that they get off it completely. So we wanted this to be a little bit more naturalistic, what's called ecological validity. We wanted it to actually look like something that could happen in the real world. Right. And we tracked people's well-being over that entire period of time. And we looked especially at things like depression and mm-hmm. loneliness. So mm-hmm. things that have been associated with excessive social media use in the past. And this was the most exciting finding from our study, which mm-hmm. was that at the end of those three weeks, people who were in the restricted use condition actually showed substantial decreases in levels of both depression and loneliness. Wow. And this effect was particularly marked. It was the most clear for people who had the highest levels of depression at the outset of the study. Hmm. So people who had levels of depression that were really consistent with even a diagnosis of a major depressive disorder. Now, they could have been mild, moderate, or severe, but still clinically significant depressive symptoms. Those people were the ones who benefited the most from limiting their time on social media. Their levels of depression went down, and so did their levels of loneliness. So for the first time we can say with some confidence that there is actually a causal connection. What our study shows is that choosing to spend less time on social media will actually lead to decreases in depression and loneliness. You're going to feel better. And it's amazing to me that those results were found after just a few weeks. Mm-hmm. That is that quick of a, of a life yep. cycle that you can get yourself. So what do you think about the time scale of this whole thing? Well, you know, the question is, Three weeks was enough to get these effects. In the prior study on Facebook, they actually found improvement in well-being in one week. So, wow. so the impact is, is pretty immediate. The problem may be that it's short-lived mm-hmm. because what a lot of people, you know, we had, a, we had a lot of people give us kind of qualitative comments and feedback who were involved in the study. And everyone who was involved was like, holy cow, first of all, I had no idea how much time I spent on social media. This was a real wake-up call. I can't believe how much time I've been wasting. And a lot of people also said, oh my gosh, I felt so much better. You know, I I did other things with that time that got freed up that Mm -hmm. really were more conducive to my well-being. So people said things like, you know... I realized that I was wasting too much time on social media. And when I got off of it, I actually was able to get my work done a lot faster and better. And I felt a lot better about myself. Or people said, that's right, a lot less procrastinating. So so they engaged in activities that actually fostered their self-esteem and reduced anxiety because they had freed up all that time. Another thing people said was that they realized that it was a lot more fun to connect with people in the real world. And that they were doing a lot more of that. So that as they got off the social media, right, they were actually, (laughs) you know, hooking up with friends for dinner or, you know, having conversations or meeting for study breaks or going for walks. That all that freed up time got used for other things that were more 
that were better at helping people feel better about themselves and feel more connected in the world. Right. And so, I mean, it's great data. Um, are you guys doing uh, uh, more data around social media or is this going to be something that uh, that was your limited experience into social media? So we are doing a follow-up study this year. We decided to look at dating app usage. One of the Mm. things that we sort of almost inadvertently collected in that first study, because those those battery usage apps just give you an entire list of all the apps that have been used on the phone, um, we were able to see that people were spending an enormous amount of time on dating apps as well. Now, we couldn't actually analyze that data because we hadn't, you know, really consented people into that piece of, of, you know, sharing their data with us. We sort of collected it inadvertently and people had no trouble sharing it with us, but we didn't feel it right to analyze it. So this year we decided to do a follow-up study where we did a very similar design, um, but we asked people to actually get off dating apps completely. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is a college student population. Right. They're not to, getting off any dating apps. Are you well, kidding me? Well, now, hold on now. I, would, <laughs> here's I wouldn't. The, here's the funny thing. I don't actually understand why college students need dating apps. Because when you're in college, it's like the perfect time you are surrounded by an enormous pool of eligible dating partners who you right. meet just as a matter of course every day. So I don't really quite understand the need for dating apps. But we did. I mean, it is a lot of work to find a match out in public because you have to go to the club. You got to get dressed up. You got to listen to like Belle Biv DeVoe singing Poison and like (laughs) have the moves. So it is tougher. Oh well, hold on. Or they still play Belle Biv DeVoe. Or I don't know. know. Or if you're in college, (laughs) you can just turn to the person sitting next to you and lecture and say, "Hey, you know, what do you think about that last assignment? You know, you want to get coffee sometime this week." So it's actually not that hard in college, but Mm -hmm. we did. We did find a couple, we've, we've, we've done a sort of our preliminary data analysis and we, we do have some interesting findings and it's a little counterintuitive. It actually turns out that dating apps are probably good for college students, especially guys. Really? Um, yeah, they feel better about themselves when they're on dating apps and making them get off the dating apps, mm. um, particularly sort of their, their self-esteem around their sort of physicality kind of started to plummet a little bit. Wow. Yeah, I think that is a great segue into the rest of the conversation, which is like, why do we feel bad around social media? What are the things Mm -hmm. about social media that makes us feel like less of people and get these depressive Mm -hmm. symptoms that Mm -hmm. quickly are removed once we um, once we get off of it, get off of the social yeah. media, right? Yeah. So, so let's talk about what, in your mind, uh, come comes up uh, around social media. So, there are a couple of things we know from prior research, and then I have some hypotheses too. One of the things we know is that social media definitely, definitely engages people in what's called upward social comparison. Mm-hmm. So, when you're looking at someone else's Instagram feed or their Snapchats, mm-hmm. you're not seeing sort of every aspect of their life. You're seeing the carefully curated, fun, best moments. You're seeing the highlights reel of someone right. else's life. Mm-hmm. And when you sit around looking at someone else's highlights reel, you start to feel kind of crappy about your own life. Yes. Your own life kind of pales in comparison. Your vacations aren't as cool. Your dinners aren't as interesting. You're not hanging out with that cool group of people that didn't invite you to go with them to the fill in the blank. Yes. Um, so it 
immediately makes people feel like their lives don't measure up in comparison to other people's lives. That's one of the problems. Right. You see glimpses of what people want to show, right. and it's only shown in the best light possible. Speaking exactly. of my addiction to Reddit, there's this really, really great subreddit called Instagram Reality, where you can see uh, what people are posting and then what is real. And a lot of this is about the physical side, which I'm sure mm-hmm. you're going to mention. Mm-hmm. But um, these these women and men don't even look like the same people. One of my staff member used to do photo shoots for her old uh, uh, business where she used mm-hmm. to work. And they found some cool kids on Instagram because that's kind of the approach that they wanted to take. And they, they had them uh, fly out to Japan to take these pictures. And she said, you wouldn't even recognize. We're like, are you the assistants? That's <laughs> what she said. <laughs> because they were so unrecognizable because of right. the, the vision and the image that's that exactly they put out right. there. Yep. And and again, your or ordinary life seems like it's bad and mm-hmm. uh, and the aspirational aspect mm-hmm. is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right and that's a great example that that your your coworker described. So, you know, we've known for decades that if you sit a young woman down with a glossy woman's magazine where everything is, you know, where people spent 4 hours getting the model to look like that and and then photoshopped it, um, that women's self-esteem will plummet. They will feel badly about themselves. They will feel badly about their bodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really an interesting question about why women even buy those magazines because we know yeah. the effect. It's to, it makes you feel bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. So we've known that for decades. The problem is that with Snapchat and Instagram, you're not just seeing models and movie stars. You're seeing your friends and acquaintances, Mm -hmm. but they're using Snapchat filters to make their eyes a little bit bigger or make their lips fuller or Mm -hmm. change the lighting or something. Get rid of their pores. Like nobody has pores pores anymore. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) So now it's not just superstars and models where we can, you know, kind of dismiss that because we all kind of know, well, okay, like they're special people. No, now it's your friends and acquaintances who look even better than in real life on Mm -hmm. these platforms. And wow, there is nothing better calculated to make you feel badly about yourself. So that's another piece. And then there's a third piece, which is the feeling of social exclusion. Now, Mm -hmm. young people, probably since the time of cavemen, have been worried about being included and being accepted. That's the Mm -hmm. sort of classic teenage young adult conundrum in life. Mm -hmm. And certainly when I was growing up, you know, back in the dark ages before, you know, people even had desktop computers, Mm -hmm. certainly we were, you know, aware when we got to school on Monday that people would be talking about, you know, the party at Stacy's house that you know you weren't invited to. I was and not that, invited to Stacy's house. Uh, yeah, ever. I was never invited to Stacy's party. So <laughs> should have so, hung out. <laughs> so you might feel bad about that on Monday morning, but you weren't aware of it during the weekend. Now, mm-hmm. with Instagram and Snapchat and these phones right next to us all the time, we are constantly getting information about all the things we are not included in and right. not invited to. And that feels terrible. Right. It's broadcast 24-7. That's right. And it's an, it's not even reality. So it's this skewed mm-hmm. version of reality, a distorted view. And, mm-hmm. and we're constantly reminded that we weren't invited to something. That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. So it's a whole compilation of things. And then the very final piece is that You know, when you think about true intimacy, I'm a psychotherapist. I see, Mm -hmm. you know, a number of people every week. I do individual therapy. I do couples therapy. And 
one of the things that true intimacy involves, really feeling close to someone, is that somebody has to take the chance to reveal some vulnerability. Somebody has to take the chance to say, you know what, I had a really crappy week, or I feel really terrible about this thing I did, or I'm really sad or upset about X, Y, or Z. And you hope that the other person responds in a generous and supportive and validating way, and that then they, in turn, will eventually share something that's difficult about their lives. So you're sharing both the great things oh my gosh, you know, um, my my debate team won an award this week, but you're also sharing the crappy things. Yeah, but I totally flubbed that chemistry exam or whatever, yeah. you know, an equivalent for, for people who are out of college. And there's sort of equivalence in the sharing that happens. Social media doesn't do that. Right. Social media platforms either only reinforce the positive things where you can get likes for your fabulous dinner party or on some parts of the of the social media world, like Reddit pages, people really only share the bad things. Yeah. So these are all the horrible things that have happened to me this week. So there isn't that, that kind of back and forth equality and sharing that true intimacy really requires. So being connected to people through social media gives an incredibly distorted sense of what relationships are really supposed to be like. And it doesn't foster true intimacy. For that, you need to go sit down with somebody over coffee and have a real conversation. Right. Look each other in the eyes. I was saying all the time uh, when I was more active in, on Facebook that you really can't share negative stuff. If you stare, right. share negative stuff, it, you almost it becomes a pity party. People yep. don't want to see it, yep. and and it's just like this weird uh, it's seen space as inappropriate, to be. It's, right? Yeah, it's like don't don't bring down my day with mm. your negativity, and right. uh, it's just a it, it's totally a weird thing. I, I agree with that, and I think one of the weirdest things about social media is that you end up with these connections to people that you really aren't connected to. Um, so I. I have college friends from 15 years ago that I have not talked to in 15 years, but I know what their kids look like and what their life is like in that skewed version, of course, right. of reality. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel more connected to them than I actually am. But then it goes like even step further. It's like this weird voyeuristic thing where I know stuff about their family, like friends of friends. Like I know mm -hmm. what their sister, who their sister's dating and like what he looks like and stuff like that. And right. I can start to go down that rabbit hole. So it's just this weird weird kind of space that people occupy on social media that they feel more connected, but they're actually more disconnected. That's exactly right. It's apparent connection, but not real connection. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the platforms themselves, because I believe that these things are all engineered to make us addicted and stay on platform uh, for as long as humanly possible. Oh, they uh, absolutely are. <laughs> okay. So go for it. So look... Places like Facebook, which, by the way, also owns Instagram and WhatsApp and all sorts of things, yeah. they can hire the best and the brightest computer programmers and behavior experts, and they can pay them lots and lots and lots and lots of money to sit there and intentionally build in features into these platforms that keep us addicted. They're almost like slot machines. So That's a great example. Here's an example of that. One of the things that we actually know about Facebook is that they actually sometimes withhold 
likes. So somebody may have posted a like to something, Mm -hmm. but they will actually hold on to it. They'll sit on it and then they'll space them out in ways that are guaranteed to make you feel more addicted, to make you want to go back and check over and over (laughs) again. So in technical terms, that's called a variable ratio reinforcement schedule. Now that's a mouthful. Is this a Skinner box thing? Uh, it is. It's an animal learning phenomenon. That's right. Yes. But it's exactly the way slot machines work. So slot machines are designed to reinforce you, you know, every once in a while, variably, you know, maybe one out of every 30 slot pulls or one out of every 50, you know, depending on whether it's a small money slot or a big money slot. Now, Those schedules are always designed to make sure that the house wins, right? We know that. They're always going to take in more money than they're giving out. But they they give just enough reinforcement to keep people hooked and keep people just putting their quarters in one after the other, one after the other. And Facebook designs their likes the exact same way. They release them in little bursts at variable schedules to keep you hooked. Which is quite disgusting, actually, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I've noticed with Facebook is the Messenger app uh, will tell you that you have messages at the wrong time if you if they feel like you haven't engaged with them in a while, exactly. and there actually will be nothing there. So mm-hmm. it's just, again, a, more mechanisms to build this addiction. And, That's exactly right. And like kids now are growing up with everything on demand, so they can get all of this information instantly. And mm-hmm. if the minute that that dopamine rush from that um, you know, that uh, slot machine example mm-hmm. that you're giving goes away, they can flip to something else, another platform yeah. where they can get that itch scratch that they That's didn't even right. know that they had. That's and, right. and like YouTube is one of the examples that I use a lot. Uh, I watch my kids go through this behavior, so we limit them down quite a bit. But if they're watching a YouTube video and you can watch them get a little bit like distracted with whatever's going on in the video. And then right on the side is a list of other videos That's where right. they can engage with and then they yep. switch right away. So yep. then that carries over to TV and movies. So if they watch the movie and they're getting into the second act and things start to slow down, my son will stop the movie and pick up, put on a new one. And wow. and that kind of behavior you can see like being reinforced uh, quickly uh, on these platforms yep. and and life doesn't work like that that's and I right. think that's another part of the mental health aspect of this is that outside of TV and YouTube this and social media this isn't really the case life isn't that's on right. demand and it's not as quick and fast paced and changeable right what a lot of these platforms are really banking on is the dopamine rush that we get with novelty. So anything new immediately gives us that little spike of attention and reinforcement. And the example you give of your son wanting to exit out of a movie if it gets a little slow, you know, getting my kids to watch sort of classic movies that I loved in my childhood, things from the 1970s, my kids will just roll their eyes and say, oh my God, mom, these movies are so slow. They're so boring. Nothing happens in them. And these are great classic movies that they're having this reaction to Mm -hmm. because those movies did, in fact, linger. They lingered over certain scenes. They lingered over showing the emotional changes on an actor or actress's face or a you know a really beautiful long cinematographic shot of a of a landscape or something like that and you know what these kids brains have been wired to expect continuous novelty right 
so we you do your research uh, to prove this causality between social media and mental health and I guess when I brought up this topic to a couple of people, they're like, yeah, everybody knows social media does all this stuff. Hmm. You brought up, we knew that the magazines made women feel poorly about Mm -hmm. themselves. So we know it's a problem, but do we really know it's a problem? Well, you know, the interesting thing with social media is that there are actually some arguments even within academia about what is the actual magnitude of the impact of social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some some academics who study this issue who argue pretty stridently that actually social media accounts for a teeny, 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 tiny percent of the variance in well-being and that it's really not that big a deal and, and that this is this hysteria about social media and our kids and so on is all sort of overblown and we all need to relax. Mm-hmm. There are certainly people who take that stance. There are other people who are really, truly experts in this who spend their professional lives studying these issues like Jean Twang who would say that the issue is really what is the risk of depression with extreme social media use. And if the, de- if the risk of depression is two to three to even 10 times higher, even if it's accounting for a re- relatively small amount of the variance, because there's so many other things that could contribute to depression in a, in a young adult or a teenager, even if there are other things that contribute, if social media is leading to a twofold risk, you know, if it's doubling the risk or tripling the risk or quadrupling the risk of depression, that's probably something we need to take seriously. Yeah, it's a real public health issue for sure. Exactly. And it's just like this weird thing too. There's there's this shame that everybody feels because they, they kind of understand that it's this horrible thing for us mentally, but they're admittedly addicted and they won't really give it up, you know? Hmm. It's this weird space people occupy. Absolutely. With it. So this is one of my actually favorite things about the study. And it's 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 so funny. At mm-hmm. the outset of the study, I said to my research assistants who were working on this with me, I said I was really worried that we weren't going to be able to get people to sign up. That mm-hmm. that no one was going to want to sign up for this study because no one was going to be willing to limit their social media. Mm-hmm. What we found was the exact opposite. We filled every single slot that we posted within like three days. <laughs> and not only that, but we had people emailing us, begging us to assign them to the limit your use condition. Wow, that now, is That's awesome. fascinating, right? Now, of course, that's not how random assignment works. So we course, can't, you know, yes. we, we can't randomly assign you to the condition of your choice. But... Nobody asked to be assigned to the other condition. Everybody wanted to, if they had a preference, they wanted to be assigned to the condition in which they had to limit their use, which if you think about it is really bizarre because if you want to limit your use of social media, just limit your use of social media. Like you don't have to be in a study that's asking you to limit your use of social media. But I think what that tells us is how difficult it is to overcome this. Mm -hmm. And so many of the kids said that, you know, it was so helpful to be in that position where they were just told you have to do this. Yeah, I mean, there's so many anecdotes of people deleting Facebook for good and saying how different their life is within three days, Mm -hmm. how much more complete. I mean, 
I dropped Facebook after the election because I became a part of that whole, you know, like mm-hmm. after that happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt great a few days later, but I've been getting back into it because now we're doing a lot more media stuff with our business. Mm-hmm. And I noticed within moments of uh, putting Facebook back on, like the tension mm-hmm. in my chest that came mm-hmm. back. So it is, and it, it's like when you get that taste of M&Ms on your lips for a guy like mm-hmm. me, like it's just mm-hmm. like your whole weekend shot because now you're going to be eating pizza and, and uh, doing all <laughs> the unhealthy things and so it talks about the addictive nature when i hear people talk about social media and the addictive stuff all i think about is nutrition uh Mm -hmm. it is so similar the two things are so similar they want to they want to just hand over their lives to someone to say just tell me what to eat Mm -hmm. right tell please put me in the placebo uh portion of this social media trial right right tell me what i'm supposed to be eating so the thing i i like to talk about is not just the mental issues but the physical issues Mm -hmm. like aren't we gonna have problems with like carpal tunnel from scrolling all the time (laughs) like a future human's gonna have like a scroll wheel built into their thumb Well, I'll tell you what the physical issues really are, because we know that there are, in fact, a couple of physical issues with all of the screen time that young kids are engaging in. Levels of physical activity and outdoor play have plummeted in the last 15 to 20 years. And Mm. there's absolutely no question that that's clearly correlated. It goes right hand in hand with the increase in the amount of screen time that people are spending. So Mm -hmm. there is this huge issue, which is that if you're sitting around indoors on your computer or on your phone messing around on any of these platforms or on video games or, you know, all the other things, YouTube, the the things that we can do on, on, on screens, that means you're not outside climbing trees and getting dirty and getting lots of sunlight and getting physical exercise. So that's one of the things. And, you know, there are folks who really believe that this is part of the ongoing obesity epidemic in this country. Mm -hmm. It is beyond shocking and horrifying that 30% of our young people are now obese. I mean, that is a public health crisis. For sure. And a lot of that's because kids just aren't as physically active as they used to be. Now, some of it's certainly also junk food and processed food and all kinds of things, but a lot of it is linked to physical activity. So that's one of the physical concomitants of too much social media use. Another one, and this really gets underestimated, I think, by a lot of people, especially by parents, is sleep disruption. Mm-hmm. So kids are taking their phones to bed. Yeah, laying right next to it. Guilty. It's laying right next to it. Mm-hmm. It's there. There are teenagers, you know, their parents, you know, poke their heads in at 11 o'clock. It looks like the teenagers are asleep. What the parents don't know is that the teenagers are waking up at two in the morning and they're spending an hour or two on social media in the middle of the night. Really? Yep. Really, for real. So you get up to go pee, and then they're going to get on screen time. Yep, for... and then and then they get on screen time because it's yep. such a habit they can't they can't almost can't help themselves. So one of the first things that sleep experts will tell you is do not keep your phone in your bedroom. And the young people will always say, "Oh, but I use my phone for an alarm." To yeah. which the appropriate response is, you can go to CVS and buy a perfectly functional digital alarm clock for like five ninety nine. How about you go do right. that? <laughs> Right. And like everybody's parents have those same alarms that they had as kids because those mm-hmm. things never die. They're the right. cockroaches that's, of electronics. That's exactly. So do not, if you're a parent, let your kid take their phone into their bedroom at bedtime. It's a terrible idea. Everybody has to leave their phone in the kitchen plugged into a charger. And, and that just has to be the family rule. So in addition to the actual time spent on the screen, The other thing that we know about screen time and sleep is that all electronic screens emit a lot of blue spectrum light. And Mm -hmm. blue spectrum light 
wakes us up. It goes straight to the pineal gland and suppresses secretion of melatonin, which is the Mm -hmm. hormone that helps us feel sleepy. So the more time you're spending on screens, especially in the evening, the harder it's going to be to get to sleep. Right. And uh, for further reading, if you'd like, uh, visit our blog. We just did one on lutein and the effect of uh, lutein on blue light and uh, how it screws up your whole sleep cycle. And we even have this wrap that we do with people. If you want to get your sleep cycle back, skip all of the medications and drugs. And Friday through Sunday, uh, no artificial light, no screens, uh, no lights in the house, just candlelight. And if you do that for just three days, there's a piece of data that says almost 65% of people people's sleep cycle will restore. Mm -hmm. So a little bit added information there for everybody. And there's a very similar study that shows that when people go camping, they have the exact same effect. Just a weekend of camping out in nature, your sleep, your whole circadian rhythms, they get entrained, they, and your sleep cycle gets much more, much more stable. I think because we're health nerds, we're talking about the same exact thing. So that's how (laughs) I know we're on the same wavelength. So I have this rap that I say that the media's sole purpose is to make us unhappy because when we're happy, we don't want to buy things, we don't want to consume, we don't want to change anything. Um, So if social media makes us unhappy, doesn't the system work? Huh. Well, yeah, but who's it working for? (laughs) Right. The big, the big, the big bad uh, pharmas and businesses of the world for sure. So uh, the thing is, is that it's here. Social media is here. It's a part of life. It's going to evolve. I think there's lots of great things about social media. This, this podcast would not exist if social media wasn't a thing. So now uh, morons like me can get on the air with very smart people and like have funny conversations. Um, So I think that there's a tremendous amount of good stuff on social media. So uh, let's talk about like, how can we be happier while using social media? So that's a great question. And we do have some data that speak to that. So Mm -hmm. one of the first ways to be happier using social media is don't spend lots and lots of time just sort of passively scrolling around and stalking people. Mm -hmm. Don't get on to look at your ex-boyfriend's new flame. That's a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. Don't spend tons of time sort of following random, you know, trend makers on Instagram. That's a terrible idea. If you're going to spend time on, on social media, spend it actively engaging. Spend it posting. Spend it actually... FaceTiming with people, spend it actually, you know, Snapchatting with with other people in real time about more about like real social things, not just, you know, a picture of your bedroom ceiling. That's kind of pointless just to keep your snap streak going with somebody. Uh, make, make it real. <laughs> I speak to that because many of our you, listeners are probably not teenagers that know what a snap streak is, oh. but they have this thing on Snapchat where if, as long as you kind of like ping pong back and forth with each other, you get a streak. And the longer the streak, the more fake internet points you get and the better mm-hmm. person you are, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I have young teenage cousins who literally all day long, it's like a full-time job. They are taking just random selfie shots of themselves in these weird s- situations mm-hmm. to keep the streak going back and forth. That's it right. is a full time job yep. hours a day and it's sort of ridiculous you know why do i need a picture of your sneaker i, I sort mean sort really. of ridiculous <laughs> so yeah so that's a real problem so don't do that really mm-hmm. is is the upshot of that use yeah. it to connect in genuine ways um mm-hmm. with other people in your life who you actually know so right. that's one of the things and then the second thing is absolutely limit yourself. Now, in my study, we limited people to about a half an hour per day. And people were really quite good about that. The average use was actually 25 minutes per day in our in our experimental group. So, you know, people mm-hmm. were able to do it. 
what the what the big review studies tend to say is that an hour a day or less an hour is sort of the max amount of time that anybody should be spending on all forms of social media combined In a anything day. over an hour well-being levels start to go down but mm-hmm. to your point about there being some advantages to well-being People who use very modest amounts of social media, like, you know, somewhere around 30, 45 minutes a day, actually tend to show higher levels of well-being than people who don't use it at all. Right. And especially, like, I have uh, some suggestions, too. Block people that suck. You know, there are so many people out there with so many moronic opinions, and social Mm -hmm. media gives people these soapboxes to uh, to display them to the world. Uh, one of the things you were talking about before was the intimacy. And we were talking about how you have to really connect with people. And there's another aspect of social media that's uh, pretty negative and drags everybody down is the idea that you can say stuff that you normally wouldn't say. That's right. Imagine there's a distance and a kind distance. of a, a kind of, of cloak or, or some kind of like magical barrier that the internet provides that somehow you're not responsible for the sometimes really vicious things that, that you're saying. Imagine going to a room full of doctors mm-hmm. uh, in public and going, yeah, vaccines aren't real. I read a uh, blog article that says mm-hmm. it gives you autism. And the doctors, like some of them would be nice, but some of you just like get out of our face, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's that social aspect to the conversation that's missing where dumb right. ideas would get kind of voted off the island. That's you know? right. That's <laughs> right. And in social media, they actually get amplified. Right. Instead. Another piece I feel uh, to to teach people about social media and, you know, as a clinician, I think you can agree with this. I'm a mindfulness meditation kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And I ask people all the time, what are you practicing? What are you practicing? When you're using these platforms, when you're engaging in the social media, you're practicing um, these uh, dopamine addiction pathways mm-hmm. on a regular basis instead of disengaging from them and practicing in a more mindful, slower, less uh, instant gratification mm-hmm. type lifestyle. So the idea that uh, we need to practice that more, the idea that you need to be able to sit through an old movie and be okay with it. I'm guilty. I watch TV while having my phone up, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's like you have to, uh, just like with my mindfulness and meditation, you need to wake up. You need to become alert, aware of what's going right. on and say, okay, I'm not going to judge myself. I'm just going to take my phone and throw it into the sink and I'll be fine, you mm-hmm. know? The other thing that I really want to kind of touch on here is the idea that uh, social media is is this great opportunity for us to learn more than ever but there's so much misinformation that we really need an awareness and i think that's really what i'm trying to do here is just to let people know as i kind of touched on we know it's a problem but do we really know so do people really know that those instagram models and such are totally not who they say they are most of them are <laughs> overweight just like the rest of us i mean mm-hmm. they're, not, they're they're not just the beautiful people so an awareness to this whole thing i think is the most important thing that everybody can have is that there's tricks on the platforms on the posts on on everything and it's 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 really about disengaging from that and really saying uh you know put your skeptic hat on before you start engaging with all Mm -hmm. of this. Absolutely. So I have to say that you were a great guest. Um, I I wanted to even use uh, an experience 
expletive to, to quantify how good of a conversation this is. But I'm not allowed to swear because I don't want the little E next to the episode. So, uh, But I was definitely really interested in what you're saying. I didn't check my social media profile once while you were talking. So. Well, that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I really can't wait to have you back. And guess what? I'm going to because I know a lot about you um, uh, from a practitioner side. You have a big theory about a connection between mental health and gut health. I sure um, do. Do you want to just touch on that? Because then we'll do a whole episode about that. You bet. So lots and lots of people um, who experience really terrible GI problems, everything from reflux to irritable bowel syndrome, um, even some people with inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. One of the things we know is that stress makes those conditions a lot worse. And it happens via pretty straightforward biological mechanisms that, you know, the stress hormones that the brain produces actually work directly on the GI system. So learning how to manage stress, and in particular, how not to catastrophize the actual GI symptoms themselves can actually lead to vast improvements in quality of life and can really reduce symptoms and the degree to which symptoms impair your functioning and make you miserable. Right. I don't think that there is more that can make us best friends than the social media connection and the gut mental health connection. So <laughs> we are going to have lots of fun in the future talking about all this. So uh, Dr. Hunt, thank you again very much for coming on the podcast. We can't wait to share this with the rest of the world. And uh, uh, we can't wait to talk to you again. My pleasure. And I look forward to it. That was Dr. Melissa Hunt with an engaging conversation around social media and how it's killing all of us internally. I think the best part of the interview was when she said that people were begging to be a part of the study because they couldn't control it on their own, really telling of what's going on in society today. Well, I hope you guys don't jump off the social media bandwagon, especially because we say so much cool stuff on social media. Uh, If you want to get in touch with Dr. Hunt, you can go to melissahunt.net. Melissa's M-E-L-I-S-S-A, Hunt, H-U-N-T, dot net. You know how to spell net. mhunt at upenn.edu is her contact if you have any specific questions for her. M-H-U-N-T at U-P-E-N-N dot E-D-U. She has a book, Reclaim Your Life from IBS, a scientifically proven plan for relief without restrictive diets. And it has nothing to do with social media, but it has a lot to do with stress. So I think you should definitely check that out. And Melissa will be on future episodes. So just like Thanos, she will return. Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you again. Thank you.